Hello, church. My name is Tim, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from Genesis 6, 5 to 22. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in, on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant, covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living, living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Well, welcome everyone, and uh, we just want to welcome you to True North Church, especially for those that are new or visiting for the first time. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Jam, part of the pastoral staff here, and I will be sharing with you the Word of God. And um, I can't believe it's already March. Um, it, it, the time just flies by, right? And I'm definitely looking forward to the time change so that we'll have more sunlight, and hopefully we'll get warmer weather. Uh, I don't know when California turned into the Pacific Northwest, but... You know, I, I'm not paying for California sunshine and having, like, this Colorado weather. So we need warmth, like, ASAP. This is the coldest I've ever been in my life. This is, this is incredible, all right? I don't know what's going on. 
But, um, you know, through the month of uh, February, Pastor Eugene took us through a really a great sermon series, uh, just looking at what it means for us to be created in the image of God. And I know that many of us were blessed uh, through that series, so I want to thank him for that. And I uh, just want to introduce now our new sermon series, in which uh, will, will lead us into Easter. Uh, and the sermon series is titled, uh, The History of Redemption, The Journey Through the Old Testament, uh, Foreshadowings of Jesus. And basically, what we are going to do is we're going to look at the Bible as literature, I think oftentimes as Christians or even as non-believers uh, or people who might study the Bible, we look at the Bible in segments. We, we look at it almost as like a dictionary. We look up a topic and we want to find out what the Bible has to say about that topic and we kind of flip back and forth, but we forget to realize that the Bible was originally a, a piece of literature. It, it's, it's telling a story. It's telling a narrative, and the narrative and the story that it's telling is a story of redemption. So what we're going to do, or we're going to try to do in the next five, six weeks, is that we're going to look at the story of, of, of the Bible from, from history, how it uh, just kind of unfolds from the beginning of Adam and Eve and throughout the Old Testament, and how ultimately what we are waiting for and what we are trying to really seek after is the story of Jesus Christ and how he fulfills all the prophecies and how he is the one that brings redemption into a world that is filled with darkness. So now we're going to start this sermon series with the story of Noah. Now, if you guys are unfamiliar with the story of Noah and the flood, uh, especially living in a place like the Silicon Valley, we might have a lot of questions about the validity of this actual event. Many people might assume that this is an event that is just mythology, or they might even assume and even say that this story and the story of Noah in the Bible is a copy of this, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or maybe even other uh, you know, stories and other mythologies found all across the world. But I'll be very uh, forthright in saying that I believe that the events that occurred in this passage are events that actually occurred in the world. And I believe that it encompassed possibly in, in, in the entire globe, uh, or maybe it just a flood in that region. Not sure. If I had to guess, I'm just going to say it's the entire world, okay? I have no evidence for that other than faith. Now, I will have to say this, though, that there is a lot more evidence for a flood than we might, we might imagine. In the year 2000, a scientist by the name of Robert Ballard, him and his team, uh, who are also the people that discovered the Titanic, um, they started discovering evidence of a flood or a civilization that was affected by a flood about 7,000 years ago in the Black Sea. They sent submarines and robots into the Black Sea, and they were able to find evidence of a civilization uh, that lived in that area about 7,000 years ago. And the reason why so much of the evidence of that civilization remained intact is because the Black Sea has very little oxygen in it. So it was able to preserve a lot of the artifacts in there. And they dated a lot of the artifacts about 7,000 years ago, which would correlate with around when, quote unquote, the, the flood in Noah's time occurred. And so many believe that these artifacts uh, or remains of this civilization correlates with this story of the biblical Noah's uh, Ark and, and, and the flood. Uh, others believe that this is where a lot of the other mythologies and stories came from. Now, there's also evidence from world traditions. I, I didn't know this until I started doing research, but there is basically a story of a flood or a, uh, you know, a, a progenitor of their race in almost every uh, nation, okay, uh, and from all over the world. Now, the Khoikhoi people of South, uh, South Africa, they call their progenitor, the progenitor of their race, they call him No, okay, N-O-H. Very, sounds similar to somebody else. Okay. P, uh, the, Gre uh, the natives of Greenland have a tradition in which 10 generations of men lived on the earth before the flood and only one man was spared, okay? Uh, Hawaiians have a, uh, have a mythology that says that in the old days, there was great wickedness on earth and that only one man was righteous. His name was Nu'u. 
He made a great canoe with a house on it, filled it with plants and animals, and escaped on it when the flood came. After the flood had ended, he saw the Cain, who was the god of their people, and and Cain came down on a rainbow to reprove him. After he had returned to heaven, the rainbow remained as a token of Cain's forgiveness. This, This is like not from the Bible, guys, okay? This is like their tradition. Uh, the people of Wales, they said, legend of the Lake of Leon to have burst and overflowed. Everyone drowned except two people and pairs of every kind of animal. In India, there is the story of Manu, and the word Manu in Sanskrit actually comes from the word Noah somehow, okay? Uh, I don't want to take you through all that. But uh, Manu, as the progenitor of the race, they were war- he was warned of a flood by a fish who told him to build a ship and put into it all kinds of seeds, all right? And these are, and there's more examples but I just stopped there because those are the coolest ones. Now, what, what we see is basically, uh, what I want to talk about is this. You may or may not believe in the account of Noah and the flood. Or you may or may not believe that there was a global flood. Uh, but it's interesting to see that throughout different nations and different tribes, that there is somehow some sort of epic or some sort of mythology or some sort of tradition that describes an event of a flood and, and the re- rebirth of a nation through one family or one man. And I think from that, we can say what we read here today and, and what we're going to learn about today is, is something that is not unfeasible. It is not something that is outside the realm of possibility and that it does not discount the Bible or the story that is accounted in, this, in the Bible. And therefore, what we are going to talk about is something that I believe has enough evidence for us to see as something that is a, 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 a true event, something that actually occurred. And what we want to do is not just look at this event, but we want to take a very high view of how this story of Noah fits in with the rest of the story of redemption that is being told from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So as we read this passage, we want to dive into the story of Noah and, and, and the story of the flood, and we're going to see uh, through the salvation of one family, and then we're going to see the condition of humanity in the world during Noah's time. Then we're going to look at the condition of Noah, and then lastly, we're going to see that the ultimate source of redemption comes not from Noah, but from someone in the future, or for us, someone in the past, Jesus Christ. So the first point is this, the condition of humanity in the world is really a world that is depraved. The, the condition of, of the, uh, the, the humanity of Noah's time and Noah's civilization is a world that is in opposition to God. Okay, so it says this in uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 9, um, it says that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons. But when we see in the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born of them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the Son of God came into the daughters of man and, were bo- uh, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, this is, I, this is like my favorite, one of my favorite passages because it's like, it sounds like an episode of Game of Thrones, okay? Now, we'll kind of dis- talk about that a little bit more, but because of this, God describes humanity and he describes the condition of mankind as people who had every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually okay so he describes humanity as people 
where every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then it says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The description of humanity and the condition of the world at this time was a direct opposition to the condition that he had first created earth. Because when he first creates earth, after day one, after day two, after day three, he says, what he looks back at creation, he says, it is good. And then in day six, after he creates man in his own image, he says, it is very good. But now he looks at the very creation that is left on earth, and he says that he regrets that he has made man, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, whenever I used to think about the story of Noah, or even when I, whenever I think about the Old Testament, I always imagine a world that is like really ancient, you know, like nomadic. They're like, they don't have that much technology. You know, they're just like herding sheep and like using stone tools and stuff like that. And, but here's something interesting. When we look at verse one of chapter six, it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and in the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them. So here, the author is describing a civilization where humanity is multiplying at a vast rate. And humans don't multiply unless civilization is in a time of prosperity. Humanity does not multiply if we are in the dark ages. Humans do not multiply when, when civilization is thriving. So the picture or the idea that I can assume from this passage is that in the time of Noah, we're not talking about like these tribal nomadic people who are just like walking around the desert. I believe that they were very, very civilized, that they were successful, that they were people who were procreating and spreading all across the land, that they were people who in the eyes of humanity or in the perspective of, of, of our human standards, we would say, man, they are doing really well for themselves. And what is required for humanity to multiply? There needs to be education, there needs to be technology, there needs to be food, right? There needs to be, uh, you know, entertainment. I mean, there's all these things without saying it, I believe, just by on that phrase, the fact that humanity is multiplying, all those things existed in Noah's time. And because of this, what we see is something very similar to our world today. When we look at our world, we can say maybe perhaps that we are at the height of human civilization, right? Um, that might be debatable, but if you think about what we know about human history, as long as what we know, we would think technologically that we are probably the most advanced, right? That education-wise, that we are probably the most learned and most read. That in, in terms of uh, the sheer number of humans upon this earth, perhaps that we know of, this is the most hum amount of humans that have ever existed on earth at one time. So based on that, uh, by, just by those standards, we would assume that we as humanity are doing really well. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we can say that even if we are doing well technologically and economically and, you know, there's like, I mean, food is delicious and we have plenty of it, right? Especially in America, right? We, I mean, like I, I think about going back into like even 100 years ago, food probably sucked, right? Now food is delicious and we can just go to a restaurant and have it delivered to us. I mean, I mean what other time period would you want to live? There's, it's a lot of success, but when you really are honest with ourselves, there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of depravity. 
there's a lot of things that can point to the evidence that just as in Noah's time, that God is probably looking upon humanity and saying that every thought and intention of their hearts is to do evil continually and that he regrets creating us. Now, when I first came to the Bay Area in 2015, I came um, like very hopeful and very enamored with the Silicon Valley. You know, if, if you guys ever listened to some of my sermons back, I'm like, oh, the Bay Area, like innovation, you know, like this is awesome, you know, and like after eight years, like what have we really achieved? Nothing. We, technology has just created TikTok and more food delivery apps, right? And what has the tech world done? laid off a bunch of people, showed how greedy the people at the top really are, and really exposed the system of, you know, tech innovation as not really providing anything innovative, other than really just capturing our attentions to distract us from the real issues of this world. So all that to say is that the condition of the world that Noah was living in at the time and the way that God describes it is very, very similar to the condition of the world that we are currently living in. That we are people that have a sin nature that cannot be helped by ourselves. That there needs to be some sort of redemption, that there needs to be some sort of redeemer that will cure us from the disease of sin that inflicts us. And so now this is where we go kind of look at the high view of scripture. Now, when we think about the history of redemption, we're looking at it in terms of, well, what, is, what are the readers waiting for? Because God creates the world, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, they fall, they sin, and then God gives them a curse, and, and, and what is the, the, the message that God gives to Adam and Eve? It says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. This is the first foreshadowing of a redeemer that will come to save mankind from its, from its own sin. So from that point on, the readers, what they are waiting for and searching for and looking for is the seed of the woman. Who is going to be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? So Cain is born. And automatically, as a reader, you assume that Cain is going to be the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. But instead of crushing the head of the serpent, Cain crushes the head of his own brother. And we see that Cain is not the seed of the woman. He is the seed of the serpent. And then Seth is born. And through the line of Seth, what we have is Noah. He is born. And if you're the reader, you're reading about Noah, and you're thinking, oh, who is this Noah? And it's described that he is righteous and blameless. And you think, maybe it is Noah with whom we now are going to have redemption. He is going to be the seed of the woman who brings salvation. So now let's look at the condition of Noah. Noah is singled out from the rest of mankind as a person who was righteous and blameless. What does it mean for Noah to be righteous and blameless? Well, righteousness is our response or actions towards God. Blamelessness is how others view us. So in the way that God views Noah, he sees him as someone who is righteous. And then the way that the people around him viewed Noah was that he was a man who was blameless. So the evidence of Noah's righteousness is seen in his faith and obedience to God's command to build an ark. Now, for, you know, if you grew up in the church, you know, like, you see Noah, he's like a grandpa. 
He's like in a, in, a, in a robe, and then he's like, he has this big boat, and then he's leading giraffes and, and crocodiles and elephants. Into, you know, that we, that's the kind of the view that we have, right? And now, especially now, like now that the rains have come like nonstop for like seven, seven months, um, we are like, you know, yeah, if, if God told me that there's going to be a flood and I need to build a boat, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build a boat, right? Um, and, and you don't think about how outlandish that might be because we live in a place... We live in a world that has seen floods before. We live in a world that has experienced rain. Noah's righteousness is seen because of his outstanding faith in what God had called him to do. Because at this time in human history, I will go on and, and make a wild claim here um, that it had never rained. Noah's living in a world where rain had not yet been invented. So how did the plants and animals survive? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, it says that the plants of the earth were watered by streams or mists of water that came up from the earth. Okay. And when it describes the beginning of the flood, it says that the waters from the deep exploded from the ground and that the windows of the heavens opened up. Now, some, some scientists, not all, okay? I don't know how verifiable this is, but it sounds cool believe that at a certain time in human history that there was a layer of, of, of ice that surrounded the atmosphere. And because of this, the UV rays were blocked, and you know, so plants were bigger, and, and you know, life was more thriving in that sort of sense. And so there's a theory that perhaps that it is at the moment of Noah's flood, not only did water spring forth from the ground, but that this uh, layer of ice melted, and that's what started the rain. So we're living potentially in a culture and in a world where no one has ever witnessed rains or floods in their lives ever. And yet here is a man named Noah who is righteous and blameless, and he is taking the astonishing leap of faith to trust the word of God and obey him to build a flood because he said rain and flood is coming. Now, the magnificence and the size of the ark that was built, it was not like he was building like a little, little kayak. It's not like he was building, you know, like a little paddleboard. He was building this massive structure, and most likely he was building it by himself and maybe with his sons. So that tells me, like, if, if, if you have ever done a do-it-yourself project at home, uh, it takes a long time. Right? I know some of you guys are doing remodeling in your homes, and they tell you, like, oh, we've done it in six months, and they're lying. It's like going to take 12 months, right? Imagine how long it's going to take to build an ark. So here is a man who is faithfully obeying the call of God to build an ark probably for years. Years building a boat when they have never seen rain. Purely based on the faith of trusting in the command that God has given him. He's probably facing ridicule. Because again, this is not some nomadic tribal area that they're living in. It's probably a thriving civilization and people are witnessing and watching this man build a boat for what? No reason at all. They've never seen rain. And yet this does not deter him from obeying the word of God. He was living in opposition to the world, but he was living aligned to the will of God. Shows his absolute obedience and the righteousness that was in Noah. Now, the question is, is where did this righteousness come from? Well, the answer to that question is that verse 8 of chapter 6 precedes verse 9, not the other way around. 
The only reason why Noah is described as a man who was righteous and blameless in his generation and a man who walked with God is because verse 8 happens first. And in verse 8, it says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another way to, to translate that is, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because Noah was a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, basically that God's grace was poured out into this man, because of that grace, he is able to respond in righteousness and blamelessness. Noah was not righteous because he was better than his neighbors. Noah was not blameless because he tried harder. Noah was described as righteous and blameless because the grace of God had poured into his life first. And because of that, he's able to respond in obedience. Because of that, he's able to respond and walk in such a way where he can live faithfully according to God's words. Now, the question that I have is this. How many of us will claim and profess that we have experienced the grace of God in our lives? And yet, how many of us will stop short at living a life of righteousness that is so extraordinary that the people will be wondering, why is that person building an ark? Because I think this is something that plagues all of, you know, especially American Christianity, especially here in the Silicon Valley. If you grew up in the church or if you're exploring faith or if you're wondering, you know, what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we are very well programmed to speak and repeat the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are very well programmed to actually believe that we believe it. That we say we are saved by grace through faith. That it is the grace of God that allows us to, earn, uh, to, to, be, to receive salvation. That, we are great, that our salvation is not earned by our righteousness, but it is given to us by God. And yet, if we really examine the type of life we live, many of us, and, and I'm, I'm talking about myself included, many of us, we do not really strive after righteousness because we have adopted a cheap grace. This idea that, hey, we can kind of live our lives, like, we don't have to be, like, super fanatical, you know, like, we don't want to be weird Christians, right? We don't want to be, like, like the, like the crazy Christians. We just want to be, like, we kind of want to blend in, you know, kind of, like, so much, you know, like, enough so we don't get canceled, but we also don't want to get canceled by God. We just want to kind of, like, you know, like, you know, walk that fine line, right, of being, like, kind of cool, but still kind of Jesus freaky-ish, but not totally freaky-ish, you know what I mean? Like, so we, we've adopted this cheap grace to say, oh yeah, I'll proclaim in song and I'll proclaim in my Bible studies and I'll proclaim in my small groups, uh, my, my salvation is not earned, it is through the grace of Jesus Christ, I will raise my hands to that and say amen. But the very moment that God requires of us to live a life radically in obedience to him, we're like, whoa, God, I've never seen it rain. I don't know if I should build that ark. If the grace of God is something that you have truly experienced, then every single day of our lives, we should be striving to respond to that grace in complete and radical obedience to his words to us. And, 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 there's, and it's very clear sometimes, especially in our culture, what that might be. It might be letting go of our greed, that our lives are not 
fully founded upon trying to make as much money as we can in this world. That maybe we let go of our, of our desire for our own sexual revolution. That this idea of being, uh, you know, abstinent before marriage or this idea that we are, are, are one women men or one men women, that we are we're very, uh, you know, striving after this idea of faithfulness in our marriage is something that we should strive after. This idea of being very ethical in our workplaces. You know, even the little things. Maybe we shouldn't be printing out, you know, our, you know, Bible study material at work. You know? Maybe we shouldn't be... Actually, I... I you're allowed to take drinks and stuff from work, right? Take as many as you want. That's okay. But, and I think this is something that we have to be very, very honest with. The reason why so many non-Christians look at Christians with hate or uh, look with demeaning eyes is because of this very reason where we are not like Noah where we don't respond to God's grace with a desire to seek after righteousness, but instead we look at God's grace as a license to live any which way we want. And I think there's some shame in that, right? I, I think there is um, this idea that we, even, even within our Christian community, that we are shameful of some of the actions or some of the sins or some of the struggles that we have that we will not be able to share it openly, that we will think that people will think less of us for it. And that leads us really to our last point, the covering of our shame. See, this, throughout the story of Noah, uh, it almost seems like Noah is going to be the one who brings redemption to a fallen world, right? Like maybe perhaps the Bible was supposed to end after chapter eight. The flood comes, the flood recedes, Noah and his family, his sons, they, they, they exit the, 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 you know, the, the ark, and now they must be fruitful and multiply. They're going to start a new creation where no longer the thoughts and intentions of mankind is evil continually, but they are people who are, according to God, the line of Seth, the line of the Son of God, and they're going to worship God forever. But that is not the case. We see again that the thoughts an intention of mankind is evil continually. Now, to kind of go back, uh, I do want to kind of explain the difference between the, the sons of God and, and, and the daughters of men, okay? Because it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were very attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. Uh, one way is to, one way is like the, the way I wish it was. I really wish this is true. And it could be. And in heaven we can ask, God, is this what happened? Uh, the second interpretation is what I think is most likely true. But when you look at uh, chapter 6, is when, the man, when man began to multiply in the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as any they chose. Um, the interpretation that I wish is true is this, and some people believe this, is that when it says that uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, they believed that fallen angels lived among the people during that time, and that they were the Nephilim. The Nephilim literally means fallen ones. And uh, during this time that these fallen angels, they took for their wives human women, and then they intermingled, and then they had like half angel, half, half human breeds, and they were the, 
the, the, the men of renown, giants. And so, you know, if you guys are into conspiracy theories, they say there's giants that existed in all over, you know, all over the world and that these were the you know, product of that. And some people believe that Goliath was the product of this ancestry, okay? That sounds so cool. I wish it was true, right? And, and, I, and I hold on to the possibility that it might be, okay? But the, the more, more likely interpretation is this. When it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, it's talking about those that are in the line of Seth, those that were in the line of the seed of the women are see, would now find those in the lines of the serpent, the lineage of the serpent, and that they were intermingling and that they were marrying. And this makes sense because what is the job of Satan? He wants to make sure that the seed of the woman never comes into existence. And what is the way to destroy a potential seed? It's like in Braveheart, right? You, you give... You, you, you make sure that that line is destroyed through, through uh, you know, procreation. And because of this, God sees the very shameful act of humanity that they are no longer seeing the lineage of the seed of, the seed of God, the seed of the woman, and now they are intermingling with one another. And this very act of shame and sin is what God destroys. But now, after the flood... Noah and his family, the waters recede, they exit, and what is their job? Their job is to be fruitful and to multiply. Their job is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, going to chapter 9, it says this, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Noah began to, to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and uncovered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his son, youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and the let Canaan be his servant. May God and enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So I, I think originally people, uh, and, and even myself included, thought, okay, well, Noah wasn't righteous and he wasn't blameless because he got drunk and he passed out. Um, but that's a very Baptist way to look at things, okay? Um, when you think about what the Bible is saying here, it doesn't explicitly say that Noah sinned, nor does it explicitly, explicitly say that drink, get, getting drunk was a sin. Now, I'm not saying getting drunk isn't a sin. I'm just saying in this passage, okay? So we're not talking about Noah's sin. We're talking about something very different. Now, whenever we read scripture, I think a lot of times there's themes, and we can look into past events and future events to find similar themes, so when we look at this, this passage here in this story and we look at past events, what is the author really trying to point at? It's this idea of, of seeing that our eyes deceive us and that our eyes tempt us. Because how was the woman deceived? She saw that the food was good for food when she looked at the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is it that happened to Ham? He saw the nakedness of his father. Now, this phrase, the nakedness of his father, is a euphemism. 
If you look at Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7 through 8, uh, Leviticus is a book of law, and it talks about all the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that the nation of Israel should abstain from. And this is what it says in Leviticus 18, verse 7 and 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. To uncover your father's nakedness was a euphemism of sexual intercourse between you and your mother or you and your father's wife. What the Leviticus law was saying is that this type of incest and this type of sexual immorality is absolutely against God. Now, when we read the story of Ham and Noah and him uncovering his father's nakedness, we also look to future events. This event reminds us of Lot and his daughters. If you don't know the story of Lot and his daughters, Lot and his family lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. God basically destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt. And then now Lot and his daughters are living away from anybody, any civilization. And the daughters say, we got to do something because no man's going to come here and marry us. And if we don't do something, our line ends with us. So what do they do? They get their father drunk and they each take turns uncovering their father's nakedness, and then they get pregnant by their father. This is very similar to what's happening here. Now, there's two ways to look at it. Ham, when he sees his father's nakedness, what the biblical writer is implying is that he actually had intercourse with his mother, that they both got drunk and they were passed out, and then he took advantage of that. And then he goes out and tells his brothers what he did, because what a, they need to procreate. They're the only human alive now. He goes and tells his brothers, their brothers do not do what Ham does, but instead walks backwards and covers their parents' nakedness. The other way to look at it is that perhaps he sees his parents naked. He goes out to his brothers and says, they are naked. Here is our opportunity to take advantage of it by procreating with them shows, again, that even though God wiped out humanity, even though he saved one righteous man, Noah, who was blameless, that the thoughts and intentions of mankind were evil continually, even still. That the blamelessness and righteousness of Noah, because again, the end of at, at the end of this passage, it says Noah lived 350 more years, 950 years old, he died. It speaks nothing of Noah's shortcomings. Noah was still righteous and blameless, and yet his righteousness and blamelessness was not enough to save humanity from sin. The thoughts and intentions of their hearts were upon evil continually. See, for Ham, this is something very shameful. And for Noah, his righteousness was not enough to bring salvation and redemption upon his family and upon the rest of mankind. And after the earth was flooded, God gives the sign of the rainbow as, as a covenant, as a sign that he will never again destroy humanity by a flood, right? Uh, and this is something that, uh, you know, Pastor Eugene told me, who learned from Tim Keller, so it's totally true, right? 
the rainbow is shaped, it's called a rainbow. You know, this is something that I figured out like way later in life. Oh, it's called a rainbow because it's shaped like what? A bow, right? What is a bow? It's, you know, a bow and arrow, right? Now, when you shoot a bow and arrow, which way is the bow pointed? Towards your target. I saw a rainbow today, right? Which way is the bow aimed? Towards the sky. There's a sign when God gives the rainbow as a sign and a covenant that he will no longer destroy humanity with a flood, he gives the bow as a sign saying that the bow is no longer pointed down towards humanity, but it is pointed towards the heavens. Because the only way that redemption can come is not by destroying humanity. The only way redemption can come is when the bow of God's wrath is pointed at the perfect redeemer. So here is Noah his nakedness exposes the sin nature of mankind, even though him and his family are the only ones left. Through his nakedness, what brought, is, temptation is brought. Through his nakedness, sin is exposed. And we see that even though he was a righteous and blameless man, that he could not bring salvation and redemption to this world. But thousands of years later, we finally have witness and we finally have evidence of the true seed of the woman. His name was Jesus Christ. Like Noah, his nakedness was exposed. But unlike Noah, everyone who looked upon his nakedness, his sin is no longer exposed, but is now covered by the blood of Christ. We see the nakedness of Jesus Christ not as a shameful act exposing our sin, just as Adam and Eve, their eyes were open to their nakedness, just as Ham sees the nakedness of his father and his now thoughts is, is upon evil continually. Now we see the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ, naked upon the cross, and now our sin and shame is covered by his blood. So we see the story of redemption just unfolding from Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus. And we just see the grace of God poured out upon our lives. Now, as we think about this, we're going to continue on in our service with communion, which is the sacrament in which we celebrate the, the, the forgiveness of sin that we have because of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection.